I'm always grateful for the opportunity to to lead in worship. I mean, it's just something I really enjoy doing. Um, it's been a good morning, and I enjoyed this weekend getting ready for this morning. Um, and some this week in this text. You know, Zechariah is just not, it's not one of those books that at least many preachers I know can just kind of pull out of a notepad or back pocket and say, I got this. Zechariah 7 and 8, no problem. I can just preach it. Um, Zechariah is a difficult book. I mean, it is... It is right up there with some of the most difficult books to understand. And and really, we tackled really probably the most difficult part of that last week in dealing with the eight visions that Zechariah had. But what I want to do today as we begin is, first I want to introduce, you know, why, what in the world does Zechariah have to do with Palm Sunday? You know, it's really not that I'm stubborn when we have special Sundays that I just remain dogged. We're going to stay in this book because every book's about Jesus. And that's true. Um, there are definitely times that we need to highlight uh, particular days and go ahead and go to go-to passages and everything else. At the same time, you know, where there are connections, I think it's really good for us um, every time. And we've seen that. We saw it last Christmas. We see it, I think, in the next couple of weeks as we just remain in Zechariah, um, yet as we celebrate Passion Week, both Palm Sunday today and throughout the week and then also Easter Sunday next week. But let's, let's think about this for just a minute. What does Palm Sunday signify? Well, remember that, that Christ is entering Jerusalem, the beginning of what we call Passion Week. It's there that he would perform many miracles, even going into the city. He would weep. He would cleanse the temple. He would announce the kingdom with parables and preaching. He would be conspired against. He would be in the upper room with his disciples. He would pray in Gethsemane, be betrayed, arrested, tortured, wrongfully accused and judged, sentenced to die, ascend the hill, die on the cross and buried giving way to Easter morn. I mean, all that starts as he begins his trek into town. During Passion Week, Christ shows, describes, preaches about his kingdom and his kingdom people. It's very much the theme of his last week, at least preaching and his parable theme. Now let me reference to you Zechariah 9.9. Now this isn't part of our text today, but it will be next week. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Clearly, this is a prophetic statement related to the king of kings entering into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday reference. Now, it would have been great if I could have timed it where Zechariah 9 was for today. But actually, it's where we're leading to. And it's it's good as well because the larger grouping of passages that we'll look at next week that do include chapter 9 actually is very broad and goes all the way to Christ's second coming. But while this text is not part of our sermon passage today, it is upon us to see how the kingdom people of God are given another chance to be the people of his kingdom. That's really... What we're saying on a most practical level is what Zechariah is all about. Does God give second chances? Yes, he does. And, and multiple times over does he give second chances. But we have to see that these second chances are all about God redeeming his people unto himself so that he can be their God and they will be his people. And what you're going to see today in our text is that, yes, indeed, God does give second chances. And most particularly, he does so by his word in the community of saints. He does give us second chances, but it's by his word in community. And he's going to describe for you what that kingdom community looks like as it responds, as she responds, referencing the church, 
rightly to the word that's proclaimed in her midst. Now, chapter 7 and 8 are pretty clearly divided. Chapter 7 speaks of God's word and community in the past. As a warning to those who are hearing Zechariah's message, he is saying, here is what happened to your forefathers who heard the prophet speak and they didn't respond and this is what happened. So they're to hear the word preached and they're to hear that and, res- and understand that history actually can repeat itself if you don't repent and turn to me. Well, then chapter 8 actually deals with then the word of God coming to his kingdom people on this is now how I'm setting my heart on you now and this is the hope that you have. And basically what he ends up doing is speaking of the word of God and community in the future so that they are banking on the promises of God for their present circumstances. What you actually don't have is much about what's going on right then. So they're looking back at what God has done before because God's the same. He remains holy and he also deals with sin in the same way. It's just we don't like the timing of it. And then God has promises for us in the future, which to me says, no matter what's going on in our present, that the thing that will sustain us the most, even though I know we could boil it down to a couple of kind of very hands-on, grippable points for today, it seems like to me that this is the kind of hope that exceeds anything that any of us would ever go through. That at the end of the day, you know, you can, you can look at the day you'll be released from a hospital. You can look at the day that perhaps a very difficult pregnancy will actually give birth to what we pray would be a healthy son or daughter. You can look at all that. But on the worst of those days and on the worst of those circumstances, the only thing that will sustain you are the promises of God for a hope and a future that is far exceeding this world. That is the kind of hope that people who then take his message to all of these nations and all these tongues and these tribes and leave goods and kindred and let them go and can live faithfully because of the future hope. There's no present guarantees. We'd be fools to not learn that lesson today. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of reminders. I'll simply say this about Zechariah itself. Well, himself as a priest. Uh, served alongside Zerubbabel, who was a governor. Uh, prophesied just after Haggai did, around 520 B.C. So about 20 years after the initial return after Babylonian captivity, Persians conquer Babylon. They send the the Jews back to Jerusalem. 20 plus years in, they're doing their job. They're supposed to rebuild the temple. They're having difficulty. Things are not as rosy as they would have liked. They become discouraged. And as we looked at last week in combining the text with James, you see that you really have one of two responses when it comes to difficulties or trials, so to speak. You can either remain steadfast, having wisdom to see that every trial is actually producing you in you a deeper faith, a faith that who God is and what God is and all that God's promised is actually true. Or you can, as James speaks of, give in to temptation. Knowing that even though God allowed the trial, God is not the one who causes the temptation to occur. That's your own bait and trap that you set with your own flesh. Sometimes we respond to trials by sinning. We become tempted and we run after that because frankly it's easier. It feels good for the moment, but it disregards belief in all the future promises of God doesn't mean you lost your salvation, but it does mean that there will be difficulties. And there certainly will be the discipline of the Lord, though he will keep you as his own. So the aim of the book really is to encourage the people who have become discouraged. But their encouragement is not merely, hey, keep going, you can do it. It actually is repent, 
Come back to me. You are sinning against me. You're not having hope in me. Deep-seated discouragement that finds its root ultimately in disbelief in God is sinful. Now, I'm not saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, but what I am saying and what we see today is that the Word of God is sufficient. Run to the Word of God and hear Him call you back. Draw near to the Lord and He will draw near to you is what Zechariah has already said. You do so through the Word of God. We are given second chances, but we are given second chances by His Word as it's in community. Now, commentators have, comment, have, have commented and articulated that chapter 7 and 8 is actually very similar to the visions that we had, those eight visions. If you remember, we talked about how it was a chiastic literary use. So basically, it kind of builds, there's parallels. So the first and eighth visions are basically the same, but there's, there's kind of opposite meaning, okay? And then it kind of works into a major point, you know, or you can treat it like a bell curve. But these things are paralleling each other to get to the main point, which is in the middle. And then it's either it's it's either pre-supported by historical things or it's post-supported by things that are to come in the future. And actually, chapter 7 and 8 do the same thing. There's a build-up, the past, building up to a particular peak, and then the rest of it is about the future. But they are meant to kind of go together. Now, I'm not going to technically go through it like that. We're just going to keep it really simple. The Word of God in community past, the Word of God in community future. But I want you to see what the real center point or the apex is in these two passages or in these two chapters. And it's actually in verse 8. This is the centerpiece. This is the top of the bell curve. This is the peak. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. I mean, this is the point of second chances by his word. That he will bring them in to dwell in his city. He will be, they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Don't disregard those prepositional phrases. Because if you're going to be in the midst of God's presence, then you have to be not God, but you have to be like him in righteousness and faithfulness. See, this is where our world doesn't understand because we are so given to language of tolerance and inclusivism that what ends up happening with God is that we end up making him kind of the pinnacle of all uh, of the one who accepts all. And even though any and all can come to him, you still have to come to him. And this is part of the good news is, and it's actually the centerpiece of the good news, which is Christ does accept all who repent and turn in faith to him. So it doesn't matter actually what you've done. Doesn't matter how good you've been. Doesn't matter how horrible you've been. I could be preaching this in, um, like we used to do in college. We used to go on trips with our college choir down to Huntsville, and we wouldn't just go to this unit or that unit. We went to the Walls unit. And the Walls unit in Huntsville, Texas, is death row. You know, I mean, it's kind of shakes you up. There's sobriety, but there's also a pretty good awareness of these guys are here for a reason. Proclaiming the same good news. I mean, that's great news. The problem is, it's really kind of bad news for those who have tried so hard to be so good, only to realize that all of their effort actually still falls short of what God considers to be righteous. So everything we talk about, His Word and community, both past and future, relates to bringing His people to Himself so that He will be their God, they will be His people. That's what will sustain us. In fact, I would challenge you to think about for just a moment, verse 8. And if you were to take those two things, if you were to think about... I am his and he is mine. And I would challenge you to think about any circumstance you are in or ever have been in where that ultimately, ultimately would not sustain you.
that you are his and he is mine. But we can't disregard the fact that this is all performed in community. God means for his word to go forth in the midst and among a people. But what you'll see by the end of our time is that this people actually expands well beyond any ethnic groups. It actually goes to the nations. This is what he's doing. This is what he's going to do. And this is the hope that we have presently. So, again, do we get second chances? Yes. By his word in community. Well, let's look at God's word in community past, chapter 7. Verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, just to give you a summary, what's going on here is... Historically, there had actually been only one fast that had been commanded of the Lord, and it was actually part of the Day of Atonement. But as the people had gone into exile and as the temple had been destroyed, there were other feasts or or fasts that were commanded of the Lord for them to remember what got them there. And it's actually twofold. The fast was to remember that their sin had led them basically to have the temple destroyed, their land ravaged, and for them to be put into exile. But it's also a remembrance that God has preserved them. Because this could have gone really bad. But God preserved them. So there's kind of supposed to be this both-and reminder in these fasts. So these guys are coming to him saying, hey, we're starting to rebuild the temple, but these fasts that were new were so associated with the destruction of the temple, are we supposed to keep going with this? I want you to see what the Lord ends up doing with it. So essentially, let me say this. It does appear that they're seeking God's favor. They come through priests, and I think it's important to understand they go through a mediator, and they're trying to understand the nature of God's prophetic word that had come to them in history. So they submit by coming to the Lord in prayer. They're submitting to whatever God says will be. So they're submitting to his judgments, to what he says to be right. So then they listen. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her? And the south and the lowland were inhabited. See, when things were going well, basically what he's saying is, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do so for the glory of God. In fasting, he says, he's he's checking them. He's saying, what was your motive really? You can see that the word of the Lord is coming to them to undo their motivation for their acts of worship. But even when things were plenty, when they were eating and drinking and celebrating, he's even saying, but even then, so even when things were well, you weren't doing it for me. So then when things went south and you began to fast and remember what the Lord had done, you still weren't doing that for me. He's really bringing it to them. But they are listening. They are hearing. The word determines then the right questions. When you come to the word of the Lord and say, Lord, in prayer, and this is why it's so important for us practically to know that God already has spoken to us in his word. 
This is why when we teach folks to pray through the scriptures, it's so important because that is his word delivered to you. And if God were to give you impressions, then they would never be inconsistent with his holy word. And so it's incumbent upon you to know it. But the word determines the right questions. The question raised by God is about the motivation for fasting. The temple's being rebuilt. Should they keep fasting? He's saying, God's basically in the foundation. Look, whatever you're called to do and whatever I tell you to do, you should be doing it for me and my glory and my pleasure. But all that you've been doing, you think actually you've been very religious and really what you've been is you've just been formal in religious practice, but it's been selfishness. God's contending with them. So the Word of God has this way of raising these questions and getting right to the motive, how the Word of God pierces even joint and marrow and gets to those in-between places. And what happens? Well, the word then divides true from false religion. See, as they had been commanded to fast for the Day of Atonement all the way back into the law, as these other feasts were instituted or fasts were instituted along the way because of the destruction of the temple and when things were no longer going well and they were remembering how the Lord had been with them both in the wilderness after Exodus and then eventually in in exile, even in Babylon, that even as they were practicing these things, God is demanding that people genuinely seek Him. They don't just do religious action or performance. Essentially, this goes back all the way to the law, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 15. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. What God demands of his people is love and worship, and that is exercised in obedience. God prefers obedience rather than formal religious sacrifice or practice like fasting. And you're going to see that. He says, as the word comes to you, he's going to start saying things like proclaim justice, do mercy. Tell of these promises to each other and to coming generations because even the nations will want to come to you because I am there. See, no matter how religious you are, no matter how consistent you are with your church attendance or whatever, it is always incumbent upon us to allow the word to dissect our motives. You know, one small way we do this, we don't equate church covenants with the Bible, but it has a lot of biblical principles in it related to church membership. It's one way we can kind of check up on ourselves a little bit as we come together with God's people. What is my motivation in coming to church today? I'm so glad that you're here. Every time I see a snowflake, I mean, I, I love it, and I want to go put on sweats and just hang out with the kids in the house, but I'm going... Wow, snowflake just fell. Somebody has just locked down their house. They're not going anywhere. It doesn't matter if the streets are like 40 degrees, not going to be a problem. This is God's sign. And I want to go all Baptist guilt preacher guy. That's where I want to go sometimes. But since you're here, then that wouldn't be for you. I'm going to have to tweet stuff later, I guess, but I probably won't because it'd be wrong. But please understand, you braving a few snowflakes does not earn you any righteous credit before God. 
So I'm glad you're here, but just being here and braiding snowflakes doesn't do anything for your soul because you gathering here, hopefully, is simply out of joy and pleasure to gather with the saints to celebrate the fact that even if you are to die on the way home and happen to catch one of those slick spots, that God has secured your soul forever. We rejoice in the fact that God has made us his own, that he is our God and we are his people. So the word then doesn't just get to motivation, it then gets to the right answers. So you don't get just get to dissect and diagnose, but then it becomes prescriptive of what is the right way to act. As the previous fasts were a result of the destroyed temple, and they should serve to remind them, what he is saying is he's starting to, to give them the idea that what I'm demanding of you and require of you is actually more about worship. But he's going to do so by exposing history. Let's look in verses 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, true judgments. So as God dissects the motive, he's saying, this is what's true. And this is going to sound like James. This is going to sound like that pure and undefiled religion stuff. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Okay, but this is what happened to that previous generation. So God's contended with them before. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So they busied themselves with even religious practices, but it wasn't pure and undefiled religion. It was busy religious work, but it wasn't faithful obedience to the Lord. And they got themselves so busy doing such things that they turned a stubborn shoulder and a deaf ear to his word, thinking that if we don't really hear what he's actually saying, maybe we won't be accountable. That's not the case, because here the Lord goes on to say they were absolutely accountable. See, God's word is meant to be spoken, but it's also then also meant to be heard. Because we will be held accountable for that word. And this becomes then evidence of whether or not there's disobedience to God's word when you hear it, when you listen to it. If you don't want to hear what the word of God says, you're already giving evidence of at least that you're in disobedience and perhaps that you're not even really a Christian. There is something about the testimony of the Spirit where he takes the sword of the Spirit, testifying to your spirit that you are indeed a child of God and it causes you to want to cry out, Abba, Father, and you do not disregard the Word of God in that cry. Basically, the true Christian has something in him or her that makes them want the Word. There's a longing. Even even if sinful distance, there's a longing to return even though knowing it's hard and it could be humiliating, there is a longing. But then it goes from hearing to action. Look at verses 11 to 14. After they refused and they turned this stubborn shoulder, look down, it says, Therefore great anger, at the end of verse 12, came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. Eventually things got so bad that they eventually said, Okay, God, will you? But what does the word say? The word says that if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear your prayers. And this is the case for them. And so what did he do? He scattered them 
with a whirlwind among all the nations. They were conquered and captured over and over again by foreign nations. The land that they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro. And the pleasant land was made desolate. See, the word of God scatters the disobedient. The word of God creates desolation where those who even formally obeyed, you cannot depend on on former obedience to help you with present obedience. If you're disobeying the Lord, He is good enough to send you into some form of exile to get your attention to cry out to Him. But even then, it's not just the cry. It's got to be the cry of your heart that you want to actually return to Him. Not the pleasant, desolate land that because of your sin has become wasted. I mean, the truth is, right, we teach our kids this, but we just don't like to remember it as adults, that even though we receive discipline and even correction and then even forgiveness and restoration, does that always mean the consequences go away? No, it does not. That's often a test, even when we're parenting, right? I mean, we try to, in our best moments as dads, we're explaining to our kids, yes, indeed, that we do love them, but that we also need to understand that, that even in their remorse, we're not disregarding the remorse, but we're telling them, you're still going to get a consequence for what you did. And I'm grateful that your heart is turning. But oftentimes in that moment when they know that the boom's about to be lowered, um, you get to see and discern whether or not the real motivation is for restored fellowship. I mean, you don't go through all those words, but you're still, I mean, as far as any formal kind of restored fellowship, all that stuff with your nine-year-old kid. I just threw out nine, but that's not because of you, Elizabeth. But you can tell. And that's a good lesson to learn that even though we might be restored and forgiven, we still might have to face the consequences. But for the believer, what do we know? That ultimately the judgment that falls because of sin has fallen on the head of Christ. And no matter what we may go through, it's not punishment for sin as much as discipline for restoration. But it's never punishment because God took all that because of Jesus for us. So God's word scatters the disobedient and creates desolation in their wake. But you know what? What you'll see in it is that the word of God eventually, like a siren, goes out and brings his remnant back. That's what we see in chapter 8. How the word, God's word in community future. See, in the past, they were disobedient. They disregarded the word. They listened, but then they didn't like what they heard. And then they turned a deaf ear and then God scattered them. And they're coming out of this. Remember, the people that he's talking to are the Babylonian exiles. They can relate to the people that were in the wilderness. They can relate to people who were captured by Egypt. And then they can relate to people who were captured by Assyria or Phoenicia or any number of other cities that came in or, or conquering nations that came in. They can relate. And the historical warning is to say, if you don't obey the word of God, this too can happen to you. But I want you to also see that no matter how persistently stubborn God's people can be, God's pervasive mercy wins. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Wow, what a, what a combo. But that's God's character. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. A jealous and wrath-filled God will return to his city. And Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. 
So the people that make up the city, they will also be known as being faithful to the only God. And God will, even in the surrounding areas, it will be called holy because that is God's presence. So basically, you're not in God's city and you're not His presence if there's not faithfulness and holiness. And this is nothing you can do on your own. You're going to see this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 4, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. Which first says that the generation, he's going to lengthen their days. It's a heritage. It's a promise. I love verse 5. We don't see much of these verses in the Old Testament. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. It's a beautiful picture of this community. This mixed, varied community. You've got the old with their staff. You've got the young in the streets playing. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of these of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. You know what he's doing here? He's establishing how the delight of the people becomes God's delight. This is the beauty of God's city. This is the beauty of God's kingdom. When we delight in what delights God, God will fuel our delight all day long if our delight is Him. If it's short of that, not so much. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. God's word for community future is all about his presence. You know, it's been said many times, if, if you are not enjoying God's presence now, or if you are resisting God's presence now, you are not going to enjoy heaven very much. Now, it's not that we're just sitting around in white robes and chiffon flying everywhere. I don't know where that reference came from, but I just thought of it. And, and everything's just kind of flowy and wispy and kind of airy and a little bit cloudy and everything's ethereal. And, and then there's God and we're just singing these, these really cool harmonizing. There's all kinds of stuff going on in heaven. All kinds of beautiful, beautiful interaction. Lots of activity. But not just to keep us busy, it's to show that in every regard, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything we do will be to God's glory. It will be in His presence. So everything we do, say, think, or breathe will be both faithful and holy. So this is part of the pursuit of the kingdom of God now. He talks about the place of His presence, that the place of His presence is basically in this holy city, but it's with Him. He is the place. He is the place. I do get tense when I'm at funerals and people are just immediately go right to the great fishing hole in the sky or they're playing golf and they're doing this. I'm just going, okay, maybe, maybe, but, oh, I mean, really? Because maybe there are, is some of that activity. I do believe there's nature. I do believe it's redeemed. I do believe it's very much like what we see now except exponentially and mind-bogglingly greater and perfect in every regard. But to make it act like that everything we enjoy here is consummated in kind of the perfect golf game or the perfect tennis match or something in heaven, the longing for the believer is to be with their God. This is part of the blessing of present trials. is to shape you and shape your longing to be for God Himself, not for the things that we just lost because of the trial. They're good reminders. They're, it's a blessing of the Lord to have our grip loosened on goods and kindred. 
God's faithful desire to purify his people so that he can joyfully dwell in their presence and they can be with him is the pursuit. The people of his presence, they're redeemed. And you're going to see in a moment how they're redeemed from the nations and he restores them to community. They are a people together enjoying and reveling in his presence. This is what God's presence is about in the word in community future. What does Psalm 37, 4 say? We know it. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not circumstance-based. Whatever your present discouragement or present trial, the command of the Lord, the beauty of it, to delight yourself in Him and He will give you the desires of your heart. Your desire may be in the moment to have those circumstances different. It may be you're without a job and you hope that the desire of your heart to have a job is what God gives you, but there's no mind games with God because eventually what will happen during the trial is you'll love God more and you'll trust Him enough for provision. And guess what, church? I mean, eventually we're going to become like other nations. And we're going to see Acts 2 and we're going to see Acts 4 really come to light and we really are going to have to share our goods with everybody so that we're all fed well if we sustain long enough. And if not, then we need to teach our children the Word so that they know how to live in that kind of community. Because eventually the world's going to squeeze out the provision. However God chooses to sustain us. What we see then is that God's people in community are shaped and formed by His presence. That's what we see in verses 9 through 23. I'm going to read as much of it as I can in groups. First of all, 9 through 13. We're going to see how this community is a redeemed community. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be rebuilt. So the prophets came, and even when he first said, rebuild my temple, and they laid the foundations, he said, you heard this, and you began to respond. Oh, but this is God's wonderful interjection, verse 11. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. See, this redeemed community is being restored, and they're being restored with strength. What does God command them to do? Rebuild the temple. What do they need encouragement to do in the midst of their discouragement and their temptation to sin? They need encouragement to obey the word of the Lord. The strengthening of hands is the fact that God will equip you with everything necessary for you to accomplish His purposes. That is wonderfully encouraging from the word of the Lord. It's present. It's now. Oh yes, God will absolutely provide a way and He has redeemed a community and will continue to redeem a community until all the nations, all of His from all the nations will come in. And He will establish it and it will be peaceful and there will be the old and the young and there will be revelry and it will be passionate and it will be pleasurable and it will be without sin. But even in the temporal state, the most present state of rebuilding the temple, He says, I will strengthen your hands to do exactly what I've told you and called you to do and it will be for you a joy. See, when God strengthens your hands, it's because He has already been strengthening your heart. And that heart is only strengthened, and you know this, 
when it is for Him. When your passion and your delight and your desire is for Him. Where you're not treating Him like sugar daddy. Just change the circumstances. Please, would you do it? No, the real encouragement comes in when He has turned your heart toward Himself. And your hands are then strong to do whatever He says because it doesn't matter how oppressive the nations are around you or how oppressive this world may seem. This is the kind of encouragement that sustains even if, even if, even if your eschatological viewpoint says we're not here for the tribulation and then what if happens on that day all of a sudden you realize, oh, I am here for the tribulation. God will equip the church for everything necessary to do His will, no matter how bleak it seems, because there is a kingdom come. See, not every Jew became remnant. What does Paul say? We know that Paul says that not every, not all Israel is Israel. Not every Jew is part of His kingdom people. The other side of the mystery is that Gentiles are actually made as part of the spiritual Israel. And Christ alone makes them both His own. See, Christ is God in the flesh. Christ entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, the very place where the temple was to be rebuilt through Zechariah and Zerubbabel. And do you know what He did when He first went in? He cleansed that temple. He cleansed the temple to show that this is where God dwells. This represents God's dwelling, and it must be pure. And those who enter and and reside in it must be pure of heart. And by weekend, he would lay down his life for the remnant to purify them so that they could be God's temple, even though the temple would be destroyed. He rose again three days later to remove forever the need for any earthly temple. There was no need for any more Zechariah's. There was no need for any Zerubbabel's to govern his people. Christ would be their king priest. He would be the final sacrifice to make those who are his own from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be his people and he would be their God. That only happens through Christ. Are you part of his kingdom? Are you part of the remnant? Just being in church, even in a Christian evangelical church, does not make you a Christian. doesn't make you part of that kingdom. Only if you are banking on the only one whom God provided, which is God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Only if you bank on him to have cleansed your heart, to have died for your sin, because God comes with both faithfulness and wrath. Christ was faithful in his life, never sinned. That's the demand he places on you. Could you honestly raise your hand right now and say you've never sinned in your life? You could not. You could not. And even if you did, you just blew it. You could not. That demands death. God's wrath will fall on you. But Christ lived the perfect life. When then he died a death that you deserve because of sin. He didn't deserve it at all. But he took on God's wrath. So he was faithful in his life, but he took God's wrath on his own head on the cross. And he rose from the the dead so that we would know that there was no other sacrifice ever needed, that it was full, final, and sufficient. It was done. Are you part of that kingdom? Well, here's how God describes that kingdom through his word, through Zechariah, beginning in verse 18. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, He comes back to the initial question back in chapter 7. 
The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. It is going to be a kingdom of joy and festivity. Even if there are disciplines, spiritual disciplines involved in the process, they are going to be for joy, every one of them. He goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men. Don't get caught up on the number. It's just a a number related to the tongues. Here's what he says. Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. What nation did Christ enter into? The Jews. Where do we see how many people of different tribes and tongues heard of this Christ whom had come through the nation of the Jews? Anybody want to venture a guess? Where do we see it? It's Acts. Might have heard a revelation, but guess what? This is just like the book of Joel, which which Peter preached on Mars Hill. The kingdom of God. His coming kingdom, it's already started. And it started at Pentecost. All that was needed to be fulfilled so that at least the nations heard through the very tongues, even of fire that fell on his people, and they marveled. They were hearing the gospel in their own language. The nations heard and they came. Not to become Jewish. But isn't it interesting that in the early church, wasn't that part of the rub of the different difficulties of interpretation? Hey, the Gentiles are coming in. Should we circumcise them? Should we make them Jews? Thank goodness for all Gentiles everywhere. They said no. No. Because Christ has circumcised their hearts. He's changed them. He's made him. He's made us his own. God's kingdom and community is a kingdom of joy. It's a kingdom where truth is loved. It delights the hearts of his people. It becomes the appeal of the nations. And the, re- the results of all this, what does it show us? It shows us encouragement to endure right now. That God's already begun this and God's going to complete this process. He's going to continue to bring the nations in. We can trust that. And however he chooses to dispose of us as those who love his word, so be it. For some, you know, we have the Ottomans who were on the mission field for years. Others may go to the mission field and only be there for just months before God allows them to be taken. However God dispenses of us, the key thing is that the Word of God produces eternal fruit. So keep doing what God demands. Do what God demands, but do it with joy because there's a future kingdom. It gives us hope for the mission. Putting God's future kingdom on display in the present church, it gives us hope for the mission. There's no way you could read this text and say, well, this is all about the brick and mortar of the temple. 
When you read this and then read Nehemiah again, perhaps, you start to understand Nehemiah is not about, even though there's great leadership principles involved in Nehemiah, it's all about the Word of God as Ezra reads it after the wall was built so that their identity is recaptured in this future kingdom that God pronounces. And they say, hey, that's to come. Let's obey Him now. That's us. It's not about buildings, but establishing God's Word in the midst of His people. And we're to do that locally. His kingdom now is through the church, the local church, reaching the nations. And where possible, gathering as nations under one head. This is why we should pray that the nations that are even on the campus, Fayetteville itself is not all that diverse. I think we're pretty much like 97% white. I don't think that, that's not even like a pastor generalization. I'm pretty sure that's the numbers. Or at least, yeah, pretty close. But the U of A is very different. It's a joy. We should pray that God would cause our local gathering to be as representative of His kingdom as possible, even in the ethnics. Ultimately, it's about the pleasure of God. This is the motivation that the Word of God gets down to every time. Our religion and its practice finds its satisfaction when the people rejoice in the pleasure of God. Nothing else. This is where the Word, this is where the Word says, and what the Word says gives His community the deepest satisfaction, is the pleasure of the one who has redeemed them and made them a community. To be nothing less. Nothing else will satisfy you. You can have moments where you have, okay, we're going to build a new building or we're going to sell a bunch of property and that's going to pay off a lot of debt. I mean, that can give you a surge of excitement for a season, but if it doesn't serve mission, you will not be satisfied. Any more than you are in your own house. New car, whoo-hoo. Until like the transmission drops out. Well, let me just give you a couple of things as we close. I mean, that's kind of like pre-application. Here's the downright application. First of all, deal with it. Deal with the Word of God. Stop leaving it on your shelves and stop waiting to open it as you get prepared for a Bible fellowship class or whatever. Deal with the Word of God. Allow it to deal with you. Open the Word of God. Pray the Word of God. Let me give you some ways to foster the Word of God, both in your community as a church and also maybe even the community of your own household. First of all, and I'm going to base this a little bit out of Second Peter 1. Just go ahead and turn there. This, I'm not going to go through it, but I want you to just see some things that I think will help you as a pattern of thinking. And then we're done. So don't fold up shop yet, but have hope. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 5. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me say this. Information fuels intimacy. Information fuels intimacy. What I want to point out here is that in the beginning here of this section, it says in verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That word for knowledge is the epinosis word. It means intimate knowledge. It basically is about intimate relationships. So basically what Peter's saying at the beginning of this letter is, I want everything that I say from here on out to fuel your personal and intimate fellowship with Jesus. But you know what? Down the road in verse 5, he says, um, uh, he says in verse 5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. That word knowledge is actually just simply plain old garden variety gnosis. It just means information. It's knowing stuff. Okay, But those of you who have had good and sustained marriages, and this is actually even where you feel the greatest loss when you lose a spouse, is because there's so many things 
even if it's just stuff that reminds you of who they are, it reminds you. It's not just stuff. That stuff launches you to remember the intimacy, the fellowship, the sweetness. See, information fuels intimacy. This is why you cannot be a faithful Christian and you cannot be a faithful church member and say, you know what, I just want to be close to Jesus, but I really don't like doctrine very much. I just don't need to know all this stuff. Yes, you do. I mean, that is, that is tantamount to, babe, I told you on our wedding day I loved you. That's pretty much all I need to know as long as you'll stick with me. If you'll just occasionally get me something to drink, cook my meals, I don't want to know anything else about you for the rest of our lives. I'd be very happy with that. And we tell people this in premarriage counseling all the time. Make that your ambition. Know stuff about your spouse and don't ever stop knowing stuff because it fuels intimacy. You need to know. So don't be afraid of just reading the Bible through or just studying even a piece of systematic theology or getting a, a paper that was written. You can find them all over the Internet on some great websites of some really ancient theologians, and maybe it sounds really boring. Stuff, information fuels intimacy. The more you know about him, the more you will love him if you're his. Information fuels intimacy. So read the Word in community. Study the Word in community. Gather as often as you can at coffee shops and other places. Go to, um, uh, yeah, go to Hog House, the, the, the brewing place, and eat and, and uh, discuss the Word there. I said eat. 2 Peter 1.8. Look at what he says. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. Now, these qualities, now there's seven of them, but even if just one, the knowledge thing. Intimacy demands application. It's increasing in its scope. You're continually adding to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control. You're constantly working at applying the Word of God. Intimacy, fuel, I mean, information fuels intimacy, and intimacy demands application. It demands it. You will not be intimate with your spouse and certainly not the Lord if you do not apply the stuff that you know. Certainly we get this out of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 about teach to observe. What is discipleship? It is learning everything there is to learn about Jesus and doing everything that you know that Jesus has said for us to do. It fuels intimacy. It will not make you cold. I would encourage you in that to ask yourself the basic 2 Timothy 3.16 questions where the Word of God is, is always appropriate, always and sufficient for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Whatever text you go to. It's a little simple Bible study method, but every text you go to, just ask, is there something here that I've learned that I didn't know before? Just write it down. Just create four columns in a, in a journal. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. What about reproof? That, that is the rebuke word. That is, is there something, is there some sin here the word's revealing that I need to confess? If you just read it and it falls flat, confession's application. Correction, this actually is more like a back alignment. It basically is more of a theological issue. Is there something here that maybe I have believed wrongly? Or has it at least provoked, I need to check that out more. That just says something about the Holy Spirit, and I don't like to pay attention to the Holy Spirit too much because he's kind of scary to me, but I need to go ahead and learn more. So go to a pastor, go to an elder, and find, um, and, and we'll give you a copy of a Benny Hinn book. I'm totally kidding. We will rebuke you if you carry Benny Hinn's anything in this place. That fell flat. 
training in righteousness? Is there religious practice in this text? You could even do that with our text today in Zechariah 7 and 8. Don't miss the fact that the whole thing really is about this prayerful interaction. You can ask yourself those four basic questions and get to application quickly. The last thing is application produces delight. First Peter or Second Peter one eleven says, "For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." What he's saying is, as you put these things into practice, you will be assured that you are His and you are part of His kingdom. And that kingdom, you will enter into it richly. And what that means is, or the way I take that is, with full assurance of faith, knowing full well that you have been purchased, you have been pardoned, you've been secured. Basically, that person is able to, whatever their circumstances, live in great delight. Putting the Word of God into practice always produces pleasure. Because you know what? People that are actually living out their faith, they don't doubt their salvation. The Word of God will not let you. It won't let you do it and think that you're actually doing it and earning favor. The Word will not let you do that. It will expose if you're doing that, but it will not let you remain there. It will give you delight. Because that delight begins with knowing you are secure in Him. And you know what? Then you can do whatever He calls you to do. You can go to mission. You can go on mission fields, whether it's short-term or even long-term, at stages of life that you didn't even think you could. You can adopt children at stages of life you didn't even think that you possibly could. You can do some crazy hard stuff, not just because it's hard, but just because, you know what, there's a future kingdom. Both what I'm doing is important enough to these people that I'm serving, but you know what, even if it costs me everything, so what? So what? That kingdom's to come. God, I pray that you'd help us with this. Help us to to see your word lived out in our community of saints here at UBC. I pray that we would enjoy that, that we would enjoy seeing your word put on display, that we would enjoy hearing your word preached and taught, that even if it's just information at times, that we would just soak it in. But Lord, may it be the cry of our heart to want to see it put into practice. And then God, I pray that we just wouldn't stop practicing your word until this church is marked by delight. A joy. But God, that joy is going to be a real future joy. It's not going to be just the here and now. Because that doesn't, just because we're doing things better, doesn't mean that you're not going to allow cancers and miscarriages and difficulties. You will continue to purify your church until all that delights our soul is Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.